morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We are working our way through the famous last words of God recorded in Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Now, these are the most famous of all last words, but that does not mean they are the best understood of all words. And I think that's in large part because we tend to misunderstand the kinds of words that God has chosen to use in this final book of the Bible. These are last words, not first words, not new words. The book of Revelation has 404 verses in it, and in those 404 verses, there are 518 references to what's already been said in the pages of the Bible. Now, these 518 references are not just a direct cut and paste from different parts of the Bible, but rather this is a retelling of many of the ideas and themes that have already been addressed previously in the Bible. So most, not all, but most of Revelation is a look at the powerful forces of history from God's perspective. What's happened in the past, what's going on right now, and what's going to happen in the future. Now, these are also poetic words, which means they're not precise words. Revelation is a poetic painting that represents the ten themes that have dominated the flow of history and will come to a conclusion when God decides to wrap up history. Now, most of us, myself included, we don't have a lot of experience with poetry, and so we struggle with this book. Often as we read this book, we keep trying to figure out, now, where on the timeline is this particular event, or who or what is that image? But poetry is meant to give us a visual impression of the truth, not leave us with an exact and precise understanding of everything that's going to happen and when it's going to occur. Now, the order of these Ten themes are presented to us in visual order, not timeline linear order. Now, my first exposure to the book of Revelation came in the form of linear charts like this one. I'll put an example up there on the screen. And these charts, you may have seen some of these in the book of Revelation, they attempt to try to cram as many details as possible and images as possible on a particular timeline. But the most repeated phrase in the book of Revelation is this one. Here's an example in Revelation 10.1. Then I saw. You see these three words over and over again. Then I saw, and then I saw this, and then I saw that. What you don't see is then what happened next in time was this. No, it's, it's a visual tour. This book is a presentation of ten great visions or poetic paintings of of the way history goes, not just 10 events on a timeline. And these 10 paintings are, are not like paintings kind of hanging on a wall in a museum that we can choose to look at in any particular order that we want. No, they're, they're in order for a particular reason. They are linked in order, but not, again, not time order, but visual order. I think a good way of understanding what's going on in the book of Revelation is Revelation is, is a series of 10 stained glass images that we kind of stack one after another in order, and then as we get all of them in order and we look through them together, one and then two and then three and then four and on and on, it's as we put them in their order that we really can see the way God views all of history and what's going to happen in the end. Now, the first image, the first stained glass image, the first lens, so to speak, is of Jesus Christ at the very center of all of history. Now, if we don't put this lens in place first, then we are going to misperceive everything else that follows. Next comes the image of the church. Without the church, Jesus Christ tends to be just kind of a, an idea floating out there, not a reality that we put in front of us to 
change both us and how we see other people in our world. It's Jesus in the context of his church that really begins to change us and the way we view our, our world. The next stained glass painting, the next lens, so to speak, is worship. The ritual of gathering every week in worship is, is kind of like the frame on a set of glasses that keep the lenses in their proper place in front of our eyes. I mean, we can agree that Jesus Christ is central, but it only takes six days out in the real world to kind of lose sight of that. And so one day in seven, we gather to put the lens back in its proper place and see everything as it really is before we head off into the next week on Monday. Now, many of the images that are introduced in the book of Revelation find at the very end, end of their description an introduction to the very next image. So, for example, near the end of the scene of worship, uh, we see that uh, the one who is sitting on the throne in the center of worship has a scroll in his hand. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And it turns out that these seven seals represent the themes behind the next image, the great battle against evil that has gone throughout all of human history. But when the seventh seal is opened, all of a sudden we see the next image. It reveals a two-chapter scene on prayer. That's what we looked at last week. And that scene is marked by seven angels blowing one trumpet each. And each blast on the trumpet is a visual of how God responds to our prayers in the middle of this battle against evil. But the blowing of the seventh trumpet is delayed while, once again, we are pointed to the next visual. We are given a two-chapter vision of the significance of ordinary Christian worship, or not, not worship, witness, ordinary Christian witness. That's the image that we're going to look at today. Now, for those of us who have tried to witness, we've tried to speak up and represent God's truth. We tend to have less confidence in the power of our words spoken to others about God than we even do about our words spoken to God in prayer, which is what we looked at last week. And that's because, like we've seen in all of Revelation, we tend to misperceive reality when we see it just from the perspective of this world. When you add the perspective of heaven, things look very different than the way they do just with our own eyes here. And this is true of ordinary Christian witness. The theme verse of these two chapters on this painting of witness is Revelation, in Revelation 10 and 11 is found in Revelation 11, verse 3. Here's what it says. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, these two witnesses, as we'll see in a little bit as we look at them, these are not two new people on the scene of history. No, these two have a history to them. In fact, these two witnesses, they represent the history of all of those who have stood up and spoken to God's truth. So in chapter 10 of Revelation, we see a preparation for the work of witness. And in chapter 11, we see the impact of the work of witness. And in these two chapters combined, there are four visuals given, four themes that occur whenever anyone stands up to speak to the truth of God in the middle of their context. The first theme is this. Witness is supported. It's supported. We're not just out there on our own doing the best we can. No, there's a lot of support behind us. Now, some of us have spent decades maybe trying to think of every way we can to to explain the good news of Jesus to our family members, for example, and it just doesn't seem to have made a dent yet. 
many individuals have raised their children in an environment of witness to the truth of the Bible, only to see them grow up and leave the home and, well, for the most part, turn their backs on everything that they were taught when they were in the home. Most Christians I know have tried to talk to their neighbors and co-workers and friends about their faith in Christ, but let's be honest, the success rate is pretty low on these efforts. And usually it's a fairly awkward experience. So in the face of this failure, most Christians have decided to go quiet. Now, they've never announced this, but in practice, most Christians have decided, you know what, nobody wants to hear me talk about this, and it's always awkward when I do, so I'm going to limit my words on Christ and on God to those who agree with what I already think on this matter. But I want you to listen to the opening scene on this two-chapter vision describing the power of witness. Here's how it begins in Revelation 10, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. What is this describing? This is the opening scene on what happens when we decide to open our mouths and give, give witness to the truth of God. And when we take the risk to do that and say something to someone else about who God is and what eternity means, to us it looks like it's just us trying once again to say something that might be helpful, and it's just the person we're talking to, but from the perspective of heaven, there's a lot more going on than just that. Whenever we do this, we have, we have called heaven for support. And God doesn't just send any angel to help us in these efforts. He sends, as it says, a mighty angel. Now, our imagination of angels has been ruined for the most part by some of the ancient paintings of angels throughout history. Here's a painting of Raphael's famous uh, image of angels. And I don't know why, but for some reason, a lot of the angel paintings, they, well, the angels look like fat toddlers <laughs> that are nothing powerful, just kind of odd. But that's not the image you get in the Bible. In the Bible, angels come in two forms. They're either incognito, looking like humans, or they are these immense figures filling the skies and wielding swords the size of comets. Now, the incognito version is for when angels appear here on earth. Not always, but almost always they're incognito when they do that. For example, like the three in the book of Genesis that appear before Abraham and Sarah. It's only after these three left that Abraham and Sarah turned to each other and realized, I think they were just angels. Because they didn't look any different than anyone else. They realized after the fact. And this is why in, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, we are we are told to be kind to strangers because we just might be entertaining angels unaware. We don't know. They don't look different. But this might be an angel that I'm talking to here, incognito. Now, the reason for the human disguise is because if, if we could see angels the way they really look, not the way Raphael painted them, but the way they really look, we would, we would be frightened, in some cases, to death. And it would completely eliminate our ability to make any rational and free choice. And this is why Christ came incognito. 
Because if we saw him as he really is, as he's described in the book of Revelation, boy, we, we wouldn't be able to decide freely on that, on that matter. And Jesus wanted us to look at the evidence of what he said and what he did and make our decision, not be overpowered by his presence. So he came incognito. But don't let the disguise fool you. When an angel is sent to help, we are supported by the very power of God. And honestly, what this means is whenever we open up our mouths and we give witness to God's truth, us and our words, that's the smallest part of what's really going on. That's the weakest part of what's going on. Our words are important, and us opening our mouths is very important. But don't for a moment think that it all rests on our ability and our, our words. No, no, we've got angel response, mighty angel response. And in the book of Revelation, this is the second of three times that the mighty angel appears. The first time we already saw was the, when the angel showed up, when the sealed scrolls of God's word were in place. There, that called for a mighty angel to show up. The last time will be to bring judgment on those who harden their hearts to the words of this book. The theme that's common to all three appearances of the mighty angel in the book of Revelation is whenever God's words are spoken and people respond. Well, that calls for the mighty angel. Something big is at place, and all of heaven gets involved in that. Every time we open our mouth and give witness to God's truth, heaven sends an angel big enough to plant his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That's a big angel. So as we're busy fumbling with our words and feeling awkward and not sure what to say, this cloud-clothed, rainbow-crowned angel with a face as bright as the sun gives a loud shout with the roar of a lion. Now, we can't hear this shout. And the people we're talking to, they can't hear it either. But in the unseen world, it silences every unseen voice that's trying to drown out what's being said. And it gives the person we're talking to a chance to freely decide about God and his offer of mercy in Christ. So witness is supported. The second theme in this great painting on witness is this. Witness is also thoughtful. It requires thought. Verse 4 of Revelation 10, we read this. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, that's completely opposite of what John has been told up to this point. John is the author of this book of Revelation. He was the pastor of seven small churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, and he'd been arrested by the powers of Rome and imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And on that island, and in the, the day of the Lord, on, he was busy worshiping, and he was in prayer. Jesus appeared and showed him this vision and said, what, I want you to write this down. That's how we got the book of Revelation. But this is the first time we hear the opposite. John, don't write this part down. Well, it seems that this vision of Christian witness would be the thing that you really would want to write down exactly word for word what's being said here, what the seven thunders spoke. I mean, because the biggest challenge in being a witness is you stand there and you just don't know what to say, right? We've all had that experience. We see the window of opportunity open up and we know we should say something and we just kind of freeze because we're not sure what to say and the window closes and we walk away thinking, I should have just said something. But if, if we could hear what these statements were, 
that would be a big help of the witness. So why doesn't God want John to write down these seven thunder sentences? I mean, because if we had these seven, well, then we could maybe memorize them or at least carry them and get ready to read these magic thunder words whenever people in our life are ready to hear them. That would make it so much easier if we knew exactly what to say. But that's not the way witness works. A witness is not someone who reads a prepared statement, memorizes a presentation, and shares that over and over again without change. That's not what it means to be a witness. A witness is someone who is on the scene telling others what they have seen with their own eyes and what they know to be true. That's what a witness does. They don't just repeat what someone else told them to say. This is why the the mighty angel who is big enough to straddle land and sea was holding, what, a little scroll. Now, the first scroll that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation represents all of God's words revealed and recorded in the pages of the Bible. So what's the little scroll? The little scroll is the part that you know, the part that I know. It's the part that we know well enough to be a witness about to tell other people. We don't know everything. We may have read everything, but it's a big scroll. It's a big book. So we're all carrying around a little version, a little scroll, what we know, what we can tell others about. You see, a witness is not someone who just keeps babbling on and on and on about God incessantly. No, a witness is someone who talks about God thoughtfully, about what they really do know. You see, it requires no thought to say nothing, of course. And honestly, it requires little to no thought to say everything. Thought is required in order to say what should be said and nothing more. So a witness is someone who puts in the time and the thought to first of all learn a little scroll, some of the Bible, not all of it, but more and more and more. And then they turn around and they put in the time and the thought to learn the people that God has placed around them in their lives. So that as they take what they know of the little scroll and what they know in this person's life, they can say something that might actually be helpful. Now, no one does this perfectly. That's why we get a mighty angel to help us in this effort. But we do have to think. We do have to come up with the little scroll. We do have to carve out the time to think before we talk. This is our 30th anniversary as a church, and some of you know that we've been working in this year to clarify some of the language that we use to describe our mission. So here is the mission statement that we are considering as we move into the future that represents what we've already been doing, but just kind of sharpens it and clarifies it. Here it is, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. It summarizes what we've always been about, and what we really want to continue being about. And I just love that first word, thoughtfully. What that means is our first move towards people around us is with our minds. We think, not just with our words. We don't just babble on. We don't just intrude. We think first. We want them to carefully consider God's words. And so we need to carefully consider them and try to figure out How can we help them make sense of God's words? Because in this culture, much in the Bible just doesn't make sense. So over and over again, we're working at how how can we help people make sense of this? Because people make decisions, especially ones of this magnitude, 
with their brains. God gave us a mind. We, we need to thoughtfully approach people. And the fact that we are all broken people helps us in our thought. We're not put-together people trying to help messed-up people. We're messed-up people helping messed-up people. We're broken people helping broken people. Now, the cracks of the breaks in our lives are all different, but they're all there. We all feel the effects of this broken world, the effects of sin in this world. And so the best place for us to begin to be a witness is to think, to become curious about the people around us. Not creepy curious, but interested and thoughtful. You know, it starts by just remembering their names. That's a challenge for some of us. You know, the reason we do name tags is because, well, we forget names. We can meet someone one week and have a meaningful conversation, and then six days go by and we see them again, and we're... And if that happens three or four times, we all just kind of give up, and we start going, hey, and trying to avoid that person because we feel bad we don't remember the names. So we just try to, look, we're all going to forget names. Let's just help each other out here. Let's just put a name tag on and not make it awkward. We just forget. But as we think about people, we will, we will eventually remember their names. begins there. And then remember what's going on in their lives. Ask them questions and then remember. Follow up with them. Maybe say you're going to pray for them. And then ask them when you see them next, hey, I, I was praying about this. How, what's going on? Ask questions. Offer help where it's appropriate. Be thoughtful. Now, that's That's uncommon. Because most people are thinking about what? Themselves. I mean, that's what we think about mostly, right? I mean, maybe our families, close in. But kind of us and ours is about the limit of our thoughts. And so when we are thoughtful about someone else, that's, that's unusual. That's uncommon. But after we have thought, and maybe after we've prayed about them, well, then what do we say? That leads to the next visual that we're given in these two chapters. Witness is also internal. Here's what we read in Revelation 10, 8 through 10. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, well, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. What is this talking about? Well, John is told not just to take the open scroll, the little scroll of God's word and tell it to others. He's told to do what first? Eat it. Ingest this. Swallow this. Now, eating is the process of taking in food, ingesting food. And turning that food at, in digestion down into the nutrients that can fuel life. And that happens at a cellular level. It gets into every part of our body. And this is not the first time that reading and applying God's words have been equated with eating food and turning that into life-giving energy. Now, this is the last time this is mentioned. This theme is common throughout the Bible. In fact, all the way back... In Exodus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, 
We re- read the story of how my- manna had fallen from heaven every morning and fed God's people for years. And the point is made very clear back then of what, what this was about. They were told in Deuteronomy 8.3, this is why this is happening, because you need to learn that we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the image is, you know you need food every day. What we tend to not think is we need God's words to, to animate our life every day. But we need both. You don't just need food. You need to live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so all the way in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 5, we're given the images again of eating and taking God's word and applying it as being a similar analogy. Those who have just become Christians are told that, well, you're, you're kind of like any infant is. The way you grow is the milk of God's word. That's the teachings about righteousness, basically the truth about how do you get right with God? How do you ask for forgiveness? How do you clean up messes and how do you move on? But if you're going to keep growing just like any infant, they don't just drink milk their whole life and and be able to grow up. No, they need to move on to solid food, and the same thing is true with us. So in Hebrews 5.14, it goes on after talking about the milk of God's word to say, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The thing about solid food is it, well, it takes teeth. You got to chew. You got to figure out, now, how do I do this? How do I take this truth and build it into the decisions of the way I live life? Well, that takes some chewing and some applying. But that's what we are to do with God's Word. Now, lots of people have opinions about God. And a lot of people, honestly, are willing to share their big ideas with anyone who will listen. But that's not what a witness does. A witness doesn't just say, hey, here's an idea on that. No, a witness says, let me tell you what I know by experience, what I've seen, what I've swallowed, what has animated my life. The words of God have been chewed on by this witness and accepted, been swallowed and turned into decisions. And by repeated practice, these ideas have worked their way into real life. A witness is someone who's internalized God's word, and God's words have guided their lives. So when they talk about these words, it's not this awkward, well, here's a weird idea. No, it's, this is, this, this idea I've used to guide my life. These words are as real to them as gravity is to all of us. They've experienced it. They know by personal experience that God is real and that what he says is real. Anything less than this is just more noise in a world that's already too full of strong opinions. We don't need that. We need witnesses who know by experience, look, this really works. I mean, it doesn't mean life is perfect and there's no pain, but man, these words are truth. I've seen them and the power they have in my own life. But this ingesting of this little scroll of God's words personally comes with a warning. John has warned that these words will be sweet to the taste, but what? Bitter in the stomach. And sure enough, that's what happens. Now, this is not, again, the first time we've heard this in the pages of the Bible. This is the last time. The first time was in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll of God's words. It's exactly what's being said here. 
This is what it said, Ezekiel 3, 3 through 4. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And so he said to me, God said, well, son of man, now go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Same thing. You ingest it first. You do this first. Now you go tell other people about it. And that's what he did. And as you read through the book of Ezekiel and even chapter 3 of Ezekiel, you'll discover he wasn't warmly greeted. It didn't go well. In fact, he was rejected for saying these words again and again and again. And it got to the point where he didn't want to speak God's words anymore because of the rejection he kept getting. The rejection was just too painful and persistent. So 10 verses later in Ezekiel 3.14, we read this. Then the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. This is the experience that's common to everyone who gives witness to the truth of God's words. The words are sweet to us. It's sweet in their own lives. But when they speak them to others, boy, the rejection leaves us with this continual pit in our stomachs. I don't know how you handle rejection, but it's sour about right here. I mean, I'm just, oh, I don't want to be rejected. You don't want to be rejected. And God is very upfront about this. Every witness from Ezekiel to John in the book of Revelation to us is warned. To you, these words will be sweet. You will grow to love these words as you apply them. And you will just think everyone will love these words. And you will go and tell other people about this. And you're going to be rejected. It's going to be sour. But difficult or not, it must be done. Successful or not, it must be done. Why? Because it's God's will that everyone possible be given the chance to hear his words from a witness. Not written in the sky, not on the radio, but from a witness. Someone they know, someone who's on scene and can really tell them what they know and what they've seen. That's the best chance that everyone has to accept these words for themselves. But many will reject this. And that's the risk that every witness takes. Sweet to the mouth, twist the stomach. And that brings us to the fourth image that we see in chapter 11 of Revelation. And that is witnesses' history. Here's what we read, verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses. This is what we read earlier. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. This is the theme of chapter 11. Two images. Image of the temple, people in worship, and then the image of these two witnesses going out. Now, these, again, these are not new images. Like all of Revelation, this has already been said before. We've seen this before. But what, this, what is being said in chapter 11 is, from God's perspective, these two images represent what he considers to be the most important part of the record of human history. If you want to read the history books that God is writing, these are the themes. This is how you get into those history books. The image number one is of people the people of God gathering in worship. 
And then going out into a world full of those who do not know God. That's the court of the Gentiles that surrounded the temple. The word Gentile in Greek, as it said here, the Greek word for Gentile is ethnos, where we get ethnicity or ethnic groups from. And what's being said here is you gather and worship, and then you go out and you bear witness to every ethnic group in the world. Every ethnicity needs a witness, multiple witnesses. Whether it was the temple in the Old Testament or the church now, this has always been God's top mission. You go out and you bear witness to what you've experienced. You don't just hang out in the temple court enjoying the sweetness of my words. No, you, you then go out into the temple, of the, the court of the Gentiles. No one leaving the temple could ever get to their homes or their businesses without walking through the court of the Gentiles. The point was clear. You've gathered in worship, now witness. Tell others. And that's why image number two is of two witnesses. Now, again, these are not new witnesses. These are not new people on the scene we've never seen before. No, we know these two. Because in verse 6, we hear this about these two witnesses. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, some of this is ringing. I've heard these before. Who was it that made the rain stop while they were prophesying? Well, that's, that was Elijah. That's his story. And who was it that brought plagues on the earth, that God used to bring plagues on the earth and, and actually turn the Nile into blood? Well, that, that was Moses. This is a reference to Elijah and Moses. Not just a reappearing of these two. The point is, these two are the representative witnesses throughout all of human history. And they've shown up again. Just before Jesus goes to the cross, he takes his top three disciples with him up on a mountain because he wants them to see the perspective, not just from the mountain, but the perspective from heaven of what they're, gonna, they're about to give witness to. Because they're about to give witness to his death and his resurrection. And we are here today because they gave witness to that. And Jesus said, I want you to see what you're getting ready to be a part of. Here's what happens in Mark 9, 2 through 4. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. And there he was transfigured before them. They got a chance to see Jesus, not incognito, but as he is. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them, who? Well, there they are, Elijah and Moses. The two witnesses, they were talking with Jesus. Why these two? They are the ones who represent the history of witness that God is recording. The history that God is writing is not about the rich and the famous, but of men and of women who, like Elijah and who, like a Moses, who, like a Moses, who have been witnesses of God's truth in an often hostile world. So what does it take to make it into our history books? You know, when humans write history, what do you have to do to get into those books? Well, you, maybe you can invent something or lead something that changes the course of the world. Now, it can either be good or bad. I mean, you get in the history books if you destroy the world as well as if you really help the world. But, it, but it's got to be something world-changing. You, you do, you lead, you invent, something like that. Or you acquire more fame, more money than 
pretty much anyone else while you were alive. Then you get into the history books. But God has a very different way of writing history, a very different perspective on history. Now, since he's the author of history, since his books will stand, his record of history will stand, it's really good to figure out now, from God's perspective, what does he write when he writes history? What are the themes that get in? Well, in chapter 11, this is what we see, history from God's perspective. The truly famous people of history are those who gather and worship like this and then go out into the court of the Gentiles, the ethnos, and they witness to the truth of God. That's how you make it into God's history book. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to change the course of the world from a human perspective. You just have to gather and worship and then just go out this week and open your mouth as God gives opportunity. And God says, now, there we go. That's history. That's, that's the way the flow of history goes. So in Hebrews chapter 11 of the New Testament, we are given a list of the famous people in the Bible, people of faith. Some have referred to Hebrews 11 as the hall of faith, not the hall of fame, but the hall of faith. So after we've gotten, gotten a list of some of the people who have really done this, we see in the very next verse of Hebrews 12, verse 1, we see this, we read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of who? Witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What this is saying is we're part of a long history of people who have stood up in their day and in their place and they've opened their mouths and they've spoken about God's truth. They've given witness to God's truth. We're not the first ones to do this. We're, we're at the end of a long line. And now they're watching us. This is our time on the stage of history. We get a couple decades to do this. And like those who have gone before us, there's a couple warnings they would give us. They know this by experience. The first warning is, don't let everything hinder you. Throw off everything that hinders you. What is it that keeps us from witnessing? Everything, right? I mean, we will step out of this room into the court of the Gentiles, and our lives will return back to the swirl of everything. Now, your everything is different than my everything, but all of us have an everything. And what can happen is, by the time we gather again next week, we haven't said a word to anybody. Why? Not because we didn't want to. It's just, oh, it's a crazy week. We were hindered by both. You name it. Everything. And the witnesses that have gone before us are saying, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the lie that this week, one of the things you're going to be hindered by is the big deal. It's not. Yeah, we have to go to work. We have to deal with stuff. But don't let that become the theme of your life because by the time you get to the end of your life, your life will be just a compilation of, well, I did everything, but you didn't do this thing. So don't throw off everything that hinders. That's the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is watch out for the sin that so easily entangles. See, when sin tangles, it's the idea is it wraps itself around our ankles and <laughs> down we go. And you know what happens in the area of witness? When we fall in sin, we, we get up, hopefully, 
We ask for God's forgiveness, but one of the subtle effects is, well, who am I to say anything now? I, I, we just go quieter and quieter and quieter. Who are we to talk? But you see, we are witnesses, not of perfect lives lived. <laughs> we are witnesses of people who have fallen again and again and again, and now we bear witness to the God who forgives us again and again and again and who gets us back up on our feet and helps us move into the future. That's what we're witnessing to. We're not saying to everybody, hey, I've pretty much nailed parenting. Follow me. When it comes to marriage, I don't know anyone that does it better than me. Follow me. When it comes to temptation, I've, I've got that covered. I never fall. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, look, we're struggling like everybody is. We're broken like everybody is. We have found the one who forgives and who powers change. That's what we're giving witness to. But when we get tangled in sin, we just we kind of stand up and we kind of lower our heads. And we think, I, I hope nobody knows I go to church. No. If you just tell them, look, <laughs> you know me. Right? Because I'm in your life. What you may not know is the God I know. I want to tell you about him. Because he accepts someone like me, which means he's probably going to accept someone like you. There's hope. That's what we're bearing witness to. So since we are surrounded in history by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Don't let this week take you down. And the sin that so easily entangles and takes you to the ground. And let us get back up and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Because we only got a few decades. This is our chance. Let's pray. Father, most of us in this room know of the sweetness of your words, and we also know of the sourness of when we try to tell them to other people. We've all been rejected. But you call for us to be a witness. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who knows exactly what we experience. And they are cheering us on and they're saying, don't, don't let anything hinder you this week. Don't let your guilt cause you to shut up about the truth. So, Father, we ask for help from you. Help us to see the importance of witness from your perspective. And God, I just pray for opportunities this week. Help us to think first about the people around us and to pray and then just to open our mouths with the best set of words we can think of. And by doing so, call the mighty angel to help in this effort. It is our purpose and our intention not to go quietly in the years that remain in our life, but to thoughtfully open our mouth and bear witness to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.